0: Thank you very much for inviting me along. Uh, You probably will uh, have done a little bit of research on me and uh, be aware of the uh, wrap strap which I uh, took on Dragon's Den a couple of years ago. I shall come on to that in due course, Uh, if this works. Basically in the last 15 years since I've been trying to develop this technology, I think I've tried just about every form of investment short of armed robbery. Uh, The stuff I've put in green is the stuff that is fairly low profile, but fairly safe. Stuff in orange grants and banks, there's usually a few strings attached there. The red stuff, they want their pound of flesh, large chunk of your company, and it gets fairly high risk. The Dragon's then I've put down at the bottom because that's a bit of a wild card. You're effectively playing X-Factor for business and hopefully winning a competition. I don't know if the Boy Scouts do a badge for investment, but I suspect I deserve one. Um... To start off, just following on from where the Dean left off, there is a lot of money out there. Basically, money is an IOU at the end of the day. In fact, 97% of the money in the system is just numbers in an account somewhere. And this all arose during the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution, when there was never going to be enough gold and silver to finance all of the trade that was going on. So people basically timeshared the stuff and would issue IOUs. I'll pay you at some later point. And the more credible are these IOUs circulated and basically acted as money. Uh, there is, in effect, no limit to how many IOUs we can issue. As long as people are prepared to accept them, we can keep printing them. The only problem is our IOUs aren't particularly convenient for circulating in the system, so we use the banks and we go to ask them to write some IOUs on our behalf and we sign an agreement with them to pay them back at some point. And so that's obviously your mortgage agreement or your credit card agreement and so on. can get a little out of control, unfortunately. And generally, the wealthier you are, the more you can borrow, the more you can take out on credit, which is why the wealthiest nations in the world are also the biggest debtors. The US external debt is about $14 trillion. UK, depending on which estimates you read, are about $10 trillion. And the total global debt is $60 trillion. But of course, we don't owe this to the Martians. We owe it to each other. So it kind of cancels itself out, and it's not quite as bad as it looks. Put a few numbers, a bit of flesh on the bones here. Since uh, the last Labour government came to power in 1997, we've basically doubled the amount of uh, coins and notes in circulation. This is M-naught, narrow money, and the broad money, which is everything in people's accounts, all the, uh, the number money in effect, that's actually trebled in the last decade or so. Whether you feel you're three times richer now than you were a decade ago, I don't know. But uh, that doesn't even include the M4 lending counterpart, which adds another trillion to the amount. And if you're interested in what happened to the gold, well, the Bank of England doesn't have any these days, not a single ounce. The British government has about £11 billion worth of gold, which is about 25,000 gold bars, by my reckoning, about 375 tonnes. So why is it entrepreneurs, when they're starting out, find it so hard to raise money? If money is so easy to create, we can literally create the stuff on demand, why do they not access it so easily? And basically, I've been there myself, it's down to naivety. It makes you very enthusiastic, you've got a great business idea, you want to get started, but you make a lot of mistakes as a result. And to put it in slightly more professional terms, there is a difference between knowing how to run a business and knowing how business in general, the greater economy, actually operates. And I can illustrate that with just a, a few examples. I get a lot of uh, crazy inventors coming to me these days with their ideas, and uh, they think they can just sell them straight to the retailers and get them on the shop, sh- shop shelves and make their fortune. And they don't understand that retailers do not deal with small companies. They, a typical store will have maybe 20,000 products. There's no way they can source those individually from every manufacturer. So they go to a shop shop, a distributor, and you have to supply the distributor. And to protect people's margins and account for unexpected uh, circumstances such as exchange rate variations, increases in taxation, increases in input costs, basically everybody doubles up, so they're making a 50% profit margin, and this means something that a manufacturer produces for a pound, you'll pay £2 for it, you'll sell that for £4 as a distributor, by the time it's gone through the channel you're looking at about 15 quid, 16 quid to the end customer. So if you can't make your product for one tenth of what you can sell it for, you're not going to incentivize the channel, you're not going to get it to market. And an awful lot of inventions fall flat at that stage because there's simply not enough profit margin in it to make it work. And that leads on to the funding side of things because there is a woeful ignorance about how venture capital works. If you've got a lot of cash to invest, in the good times at least, you can put it away in a high interest bank account and make maybe 5 to 8% per annum. If you put it in a good property portfolio, you can perhaps double that. Getting in stocks and shares is a little bit riskier, but you can make 15 to 20%. Uh, if you want to make more than that, you go venture capital, you're trying to double your money in three to five years. But venture capitalists know that more than half of the businesses will never pay off. So they're looking for one or two cash cows out of every ten that are actually going to cover all their losses and double their money. And if you do the numbers, it means that they're going to need a very high slice of equity in your business, and they're going to be very choosy what they're looking for. They are, at the end of the day, looking for good businesses, not good ideas. And you see this on Dragon's Den if any of you watch it. Uh, There is in fact no shortage of ideas out there, the UK Patent Office has millions of inventions that have expired. Anybody can delve into that archive, choose any idea they like the look of, set it up as a business, perfectly legal, totally free. So people coming up with great ideas, doesn't always get you where you want to go, you've got to have a good business behind it. The other thing which a lot of uh, naive people just getting into the business game don't understand is how long it takes. And these are some of the great inventions from the 20th century. And the stuff to the right of the origin, the yellow, uh, purple stuff, that's basically where they've got the concept, and they're developing a business, and where it gets orange is where they've actually got a product to sell. Generally, it takes about seven years on average to get from having that idea to having a product you can sell, and then it might be another few years before you're actually making a profit. The only one i found which has gone from idea to business to profit very quickly is Whiteout, which was basically a form of Tippex but used on PhotoStat papers, the old Xerox copiers. But generally it takes about seven years, so you can see why investors are very choosy about what they're going to get involved in, because they know they're in for a long haul. And at the end of last year I was speaking to the Chairman of Nesta and he basically confirmed that from his investment point of view, from when they put the money in to when they get the money out, it currently averages eight years. So setting up any new venture is quite a long process and this leads on to the familiar product life cycles, which I'm sure most of you are aware of, that development and introduction phase, you're not making any money, it's costing you money and I often term this as death valley because an awful lot of startups never make it to the other side. I've been there myself and like most inventors and entrepreneurs, you have to learn the hard way. My idea actually came from when I was tying up dustbin bags when I was about 16, and basically I wanted one of these. I wanted to put one end through the other, pull it tight around the bag, cut that end off and go on to the next bag over and over again. And it seemed like such a simple idea, a bit of plastic with holes in it. Surely somebody in the world must make these things, but nobody did. The closest I got was the traditional nylon cable tie, and that wasn't what I was looking for because you generally chop off most of it and throw it away. And you can't even put it in the bag because you've just tied the bag up. So uh, I was appreciative of the fact that the world uses colossal quantities of these things. I reckon it's certainly a few hundred billion a year, possibly as many as a trillion a year. So I was aware that there was a good business idea as well as a good, good invention. So when I left university, I sat down and figured out how to make this thing work. And my designs were a little bit ad hoc. It looked a little bit like a millipede, so that's what the business became called. And I got in touch with the Prince's Trust, who I'm now an ambassador for and uh, they sorted me out with a small grant. But they also invested a lot of time, effort, knowledge, contacts. They set me up with a business mentor, a very sympathetic bank manager, and I'll give you a very important lesson here. Always get to know your bank managers. Even if you don't need them for anything right now, you might do at some point in the future. So I literally take my bank manager out for a drink. They do change jobs quite frequently, so as soon as I get a new one, I make an appointment just to go and introduce myself, just so I can get their mobile phone number and find out what they're interested in. And uh, it has paid off a number of times over the years. The other great thing the Prince's Trust uh, did for me was they sent me to some exhibitions where there were competitions being run. And probably because I was basically a charity case, I won a couple of awards and even picked up a bit of money. They then said, right, we'll feed that into the local newspapers. Don't miss an opportunity to get a bit of media coverage. And frankly, the newspapers are sick of printing stories about young people hanging around bush shelters in hoodies and mugging old grannies. So if you've got something good going on, newspapers are all over it. So I got some good articles and that flushed out some local investors who were quite happy to put their money where my mouth was. So far so good, but we still had to make the product work. And this is when we realised why nobody had actually made these things before, because it was an absolute nightmare (coughs) trying to come up with a design that had the right sort of plastic properties and the right sort of geometry of the shape to make the thing work. We even tried very expensive computer analysis, but uh, that didn't get us very far either. In fact, during the 90s, we probably spent more time trying to raise money than we did actually trying to make things. Each prototype cost a few thousand pounds and it was hard work raising more and more cash to keep it going. But we got there in the end, we did survive Death Valley, and we came up with a a prototype which wasn't fantastic, but it proved the concept and it was functional. It was quite expensive, about five times more expensive than a nylon cable tie. But we timed it right because the internet boom in the late 90s, they were finding that as they went to higher and higher bandwidth cables, the nylon ties, as you can see at the bottom right, pinched the cables. That was causing problems. So they needed something softer, something more flexible, and we had the perfect solution. Then one of our investors moved to Australia and wasted no time getting involved with the investment community in Perth. So in 2001, we actually floated the company on the Australian Stock Exchange and raised about £2.5 million. It seemed that we had gone from Prince's Trust Company to Stock Market Company in just a few years, and it should have been a fantastic success story. Unfortunately, uh, the stock market isn't quite what it seems. The green line at the bottom is actually our total revenue, and we basically burned through nearly $3 million in the space of 18 months, and we were getting nowhere. Uh, We did actually go back to the market, do another rights issue, and raised a little bit more cash, which kept the company going. But uh, I could see the writing on the wall at this point in time because we simply weren't delivering what the market was asking for. Then something very strange happened. Just as we were running out of money, the share price shot up and valued the company at $24 million. So on paper, I suddenly became a millionaire. And I'm thinking, why is anybody buying shares at $0.34 when the company is on its back and running out of cash? And I don't know if you know anything about floating (coughs) stock market companies, but when you do your initial public offering, you can't then sell your shares the very next morning when the market's open you have to keep them for a couple of years they're escrowed and then only at the end of that escrow period can you get your shares out and sell them and coincidentally our escrow period ended in September 2003 just as the share price shot up anyway they they got away with this nothing happens they raised the cash but they also had to cut back on their expenditure to keep the business operational and basically by April 2004 Everybody who was in the UK who had worked to get this thing where it was, we all got kicked out. Uh, I think the reason why it all went wrong is written there in a post-IPO report, which was commissioned. And it basically said, if we don't come up with a category killer, then we're going to get punished. And that's exactly what happened. But I'd seen the writing on the wall, so I had already started working on what became the wrap strap. This caused... A lot of grief in Australia because they felt that it should have been their idea. I pointed out that legally it wasn't. It was mine. I wasn't employed to invent these things. I did offer it to them, but they rejected it. So when they threw me out, they threw the baby out with the bathwater, and I walked away with the patents and the product, and I got about 100 grand out of the the shares before the price crashed completely. I think the other mistake that was made, uh, fairly a common one, is you lose control of your company. The more shares you give away, the less effective control you've got. And I made the same mistake that James Dyson did during the 1970s. I relied on the investors, on the experts to get the job done, and they didn't. Dyson ultimately reworked his ball barrow into one of his more recent vacuum cleaner designs. So what goes around comes around, I guess. So anyway, 2004, I thought, right, I'm going to have to start again. Uh, I've been thoroughly beaten by these guys in Australia. What am I going to do? And I took a leaf out of Benjamin Franklin's book, and he was always one for coming up with great comments. Basically, if you empty your wallet into your head, you can't be mugged. Knowledge is power. So I figured, okay, I'm going to get wise. And the way to do that is time management. And I often use this slide, especially when I'm talking to school kids, because they're big fans of soap operas. And if you look at the numbers, about a fifth of the population in this country wastes a whole working day every week just watching the top three soap operas. If you add that up, that's 5 billion hours a year. And even at minimum wage, that's 30 billion pounds. And, of course, these are the self-same Muppets who then complain about the tax rises and and the welfare cuts and everything. So I think, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting people work around the clock, but I think time management is something that we're not very good at in this country. And certainly I don't know anything about what's going on down Coronation Street. (laughs) Wall Street I might be able to tell you a little about, but I don't believe in living in Mickey Mouse worlds. So instead, I've read everything I could get my hands on. My degree was in physics, not business, so I learned everything the hard way. Uh, I think some of you guys are probably a little bit ahead of where I were at your age, but uh, I put myself on a crash course of anything that I thought would be useful uh, to getting this business up and running properly. So I read everything I could find on sales, marketing, business stuff. Also, read everything I could find about money, because I figured if you're trying to make money, you may as well understand what money is, where it comes from, how it works, what the history of money is. Uh, Some books are better than others. And I also decided to learn the art of self-defense, because I realized that power is, uh, as I put it, non-reciprocal. If I've got power over you, you can't have power over me. So I decided to read everything I could find about strategy, warfare, power, uh, some of these books. Certainly the Chinese stuff I can well recommend. I've got so many books by Mao Zedong, I'm probably on a watch list somewhere. But militarily he was certainly one of the greats, so there's a lot to learn. And his poetry's not that bad, to be honest. Uh, I figured, well even if I'm not trying to be top dog, somebody out there I come across will want to be and they're going to use exactly these tactics against me, it happened when I was on the stock exchange, forewarned is forearmed, so I did my homework and uh, then I decided to take a market led approach to developing the technology. I'd commissioned a new mould which cost about £15,000, it only made two at a time but it got the ball rolling and some contacts i had over in the far east said right the philippine telecoms companies are interested in the technology you're developing why don't you go over there talk to them find out exactly what it is they want so i went over to manila uh, gave a couple of lectures to the engineers had a good look around at how their cabling systems worked a lot of it is actually overhead because it floods so often in the philippines all the cabling has to be overhead and the different companies color code their cables so automatically your cable ties have got to be UV proof, weather proof, and the colours can't fade because otherwise they'll be servicing each other's cables. Uh, On the back of all this, I decided to go back to the publicity angle, and at that time Alan Sugar was running a column in the Daily Mirror for people who were starting up businesses. So I wrote to him knowing that he knew all about electrical stuff and would appreciate what I was trying to do, and I got a full page article in the Daily Mirror and a big thumbs up from Alan Sugar, now Lord Sugar of course. I wasted no time in getting a bit of revenge on the guys in Australia, so I sent everybody a copy of the newspaper and nicely bookmarked the page. And just to rub it in, the headlines that day were Bring It On with a big picture of Tony Blair. So I folded the paper in such a way that as soon as they took it out of the envelope, bring it on, and then when they opened it up, there I am. <laughs> what goes around comes around. But I still had to get the job done. And I look back to history because I think case studies are a very, very valuable way of learning what works and what doesn't. And if you look at the great inventors of history, they didn't just come up with ideas, they actually made these things. The Wright brothers actually made something that flew. Marcel Bick set up a, a factory to make the ballpoint pens. Ron Hickman and his workbench. And dear old Trevor Bayliss working away in his shed making his wind-up radio. All these guys actually did it. So I figured, right, that's the way forward. I'm going to have to learn how to make these things myself. And i would come across uh, these hobby cnc machines computer numerical control it's basically a glorified computer printer but with a dremel bolted on so instead of drawing and plotting it cuts things out of metal or plastics or whatever and i thought right armed with one of those i can make my own molds and really get to into the detail of finessing this product and making exactly what it is the customer is asking for so i spent some money and rented a big shed and bought a second-hand injection moulding machine off eBay, which I had no idea how to use at all, but uh, I figured, how hard can it be? So I brought the mould that I had commissioned down to my workshop, learned how to do it, put together a, a cheap CNC machine, which cost me about 800 quid overall, and then set about learning how to make my own moulds. Bit of a slow process, but the metal actually costs maybe 10 quid off eBay, so really all I'm investing is time and effort, and I'm saving thousands of pounds every time I do these. I got to the point where I could actually make a new design every day. So if somebody wanted something of a particular size, I could get that done over a weekend, package it up, laser printer. Pretty straightforward, cottage industry at the end of the day, but it got the ball rolling again. So then I went off to various exhibitions, just wandered around, see who's there, went to some car boot sales. I uh, didn't expect Elvis Costello <coughs> and his fan club, but uh, the fans kind of liked what I was handing out, free samples left, right and centre. And I also ran a competition on the internet for people to send in their crazy ideas for what they might do with a wrap strap. I'm told that the crocodile is a photo mosaic. It wasn't sent in by Steve Irwin. Uh, But this kind of generated some some interesting results. And it also backed up the the marketing assertion that for every person who will take something off you for free, only 1% will actually pay for it. And uh, I had 1,500 hits on the website in the space of about 10 days. Uh, the post office ran out of stamps because I was sending out that many sample packs, so I had to call, it, call a halt to it. But only about 14 people actually ordered a pack. And when I swapped it from free of charge to send me a stamped addressed envelope, dropped down to about 20 in the second week. So uh, just because everybody is very interested in your product doesn't mean they're actually going to buy it. It's about 1% if you're lucky. And really the point of all this was to get some credibility so that I became an expert on not just running a business but also knowing how to implement the technology and make the product. And uh, I went to a a polymer company down in Worcester, the only company in the UK that makes polyurethane, which was the only material we could find that worked. And uh, I told him everything I was doing and he basically sat there with his arms folded and just stared at me for half an hour and I'm thinking this isn't going very well, is it? And then at the end he just says, well Andy, I can't fault anything you've said, I've got a warehouse full of surplus material, if you can use it, it's yours. And he had about 80 to 100 tonnes of scrap plastic, and this stuff's about 3,000, 4,000 pounds a tonne if you go and buy it. So that was quite useful, and now this guy actually makes materials to spec for me, and you probably wouldn't get that from the big boys, the Dow's and the DuPont's and so on. And also at an exhibition, I met a company called Maxell Moulding Services, and they had the smallest shelf stand you can have at an exhibition, so I didn't think much about it at the time. Uh, I mean, we got two motor mechanics up the road from me, and they're, they're the Bentley Brothers, so of course their workshop is called Bentley Motors. It's not THE Bentley Motors, but and I thought the same about Maxell, who are these guys. Uh, and it was only later on that I realised it was actually a subdivision of Itachi Maxell, and they were quite keen on getting involved in making the wrap strap for me. That covered the manufacturing side, but it didn't cover getting it to market. I still needed to run a business. I needed to raise a bit more cash. So I was talking to business angels who uh, were very, very keen on the product because obviously by this stage I had some very high profile backing, certainly with having Maxell on board. Uh, And uh, I was also calling in favours from friends, family and fools and my bank manager just to keep the thing ticking over. Uh, and then something unpredictable happened as usual, and uh, a guy went on Dragon's Den with a little plastic electrical box, a chap called Peter Moore, you just put your wires in and it, he uses them in exhibitions, he does exhibition wiring, and uh, he got what was the biggest deal on Dragon's Den, £20 million headlines and all this. And of course I got all the flack, everyone's saying, well your idea is better than his, why don't you go on Dragon's Den? And I'd never even watched the programme, had no real interest in going on, but in the end I filled the forms in just to shut everybody up down the pub so I could have a quiet pint. And six weeks later there I was filming it. I obviously got the timing absolutely right. Uh, The BBC called me in for audition within about 10 days and a fortnight after that they said great they want you for filming. Now I should explain it is filmed in a studio uh, so everything is mocked up. The money is fake because obviously anybody could just take a few notes off the top and there's no secure court guard in the corner or anything. The stairs are actually fake. If you watch the programme carefully you'll see there's a bit where they're walking up towards the camera, then it cuts and then they come out onto the stage. That's because it's actually two flights. <laughs> they fill you all going up the small flight in the morning and then you go back to the waiting room and they call you out one at a time. And because you're not allowed to find out the results until the programme broadcasts, nobody comes back. So it's a bit like sitting on death row and they walk in, oh, who are we going to have next? Uh, you. And you go out and pick up your stuff and off you are onto the stage. I actually filmed for about an hour and 40 minutes, but they only show about 10 minutes and you've got no editorial control. So although everyone was very receptive on the day, the BBC do try and make these guys look a bit nastier than they actually are. And uh, I got a fairly kind edit at the end of the day and job done. On the way back, I thought, right... People are going to find out. and I'm supposed to keep it confidential, but I'll tell people who are close to the product because they're going to know anyway. Uh, and on the way back, I'm thinking, right, I'll, I'll go get some beers and celebrate. So I head off to uh, the local supermarket and I'm wandering around doing a bit of a shop and there's people looking at me already. And I'm thinking, my God, has my mum said something? You know, does, does the town know already? And I'm wandering around and there's more and more people looking at me and even the girl on the checkout staring at me. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get such a... Oh, the BBC for letting all of this out, and then of course when I got in the car park I realised what was going on, because in all the excitement I had not wiped the makeup off, <laughs> I'm wise to that these days. To give you a few uh, uh, facts and figures, there's been uh, 8 series, about 60 episodes, they get up to a few thousand applicants per series, uh, they film about 150 of those each series, generally over about 6 to 8 weeks, they film it every day so it's quite a big commitment for, for the Dragons. Uh, about half of them get on television, there's been 500 odd pitches broadcast and 88 of those have received a deal or an offer. They've not all gone through to completion because there is a period of due diligence afterwards obviously and either the Dragons back out or the Entrepreneurs back out but some of those who don't get deals pick up a deal after the show has broadcast. So uh, you know there, there have been a few good success stories but not as many as you might think. I guess it comes back to that just because you've got the investment doesn't mean you're going to be a successful business. And I think generally you've got to be in that top 1% if you're really looking to get an investment from anybody who operates at that level. You really have got to know your stuff. And to be perfectly honest, Dragon's Den ought to be the easiest show on television because you know exactly what questions they're going to ask you. All the awkward ones, but you've got plenty of time to prepare, of course. What you really win, of course, from the show is an opportunity. Uh, These guys don't just swing into action and make it all happen for you, you've still got to get it done. But we've had four follow-ups. The BBC sell the programme around the world. We've had books published. Uh, There's been a lot of media interest. We're always being repeated on Dave. And, uh, of course, you get a fantastic uh, celebrity endorsement, in my case, from from two very high-profile investors. But it doesn't take the work out of the work. And Maxell, working with me, have had to set up the manufacturing line. Uh, Very easy for someone like Levi Roots. He just hands his recipe over to an existing company, and they'll just bottle his sauce instead of Heinz. There is no factory that produces wrap straps. We've had to set up the production lines as well, and this has taken a lot longer to perfect than we would have liked. So we haven't yet gone retail because the numbers involved were absolutely enormous, and when you do go for a retail deal, you have to sign a supply agreement, and if you can't supply what they want, when they want it, you pay them for the privilege. So basically we drew a line under the retail and said, okay, we'll go elsewhere. I think last year we shifted about $12 This year, we expect to shift nearer 50, 60 million. And really, the only limiting factor at the moment is how quickly we can put more of these systems online. But uh, basically, it's all automated. We did get prices from China. They were about a tenth of a penny cheaper. And we figured we may as well do it in the UK. By the time we've shipped them back to the UK and paid the import duty, we're no better off. Plus, it's keeping work local. Since then, uh, I've produced a few other versions, again, following this market-led approach, which I'm very, very uh, in favor of. We've produced heavy-duty ones, the really big ones are about two foot long. We did those for the National Grid. We've done some screw-mount ones for people who work in the the pub trade, tying up the pipes in the cellars. We've done fire-retardant ones, low-temperature ones. We managed to get a grant to develop a biocompostable material to make these things out of. That's really pushing the polymer limits because there are no materials out there that are biocompostable that are anywhere close to what we're looking for. So again, we're having to literally design these things from the molecular level up. I think uh, we're probably running out of time, so uh, end with a few conclusions here. Credibility, I think, is the watchword for what I've been saying. We often hear about the credit crisis. Is it really a credit crisis or is it really a credibility crisis? Everybody knows that fear and greed drive the markets. I think at the moment we're in this fear stage. Uh, but the more credible you become, the more likely it is that people are going to invest in you. So I think you've got to use your time wisely, constantly push your personal best, take a leaf out of the Olympic athletes book, today I'm good tomorrow I want to be even better Uh, and of course you've got to have a good business don't just chase off the your your personal idea this is a, a big mistake that a lot of inventors certainly make it's their baby their brainchild they want to see their dreams a reality they're quite happy to have other people get involved with their dreams and help them come to fruition but they're not so keen on getting involved in somebody else's project and I think if you are just starting out that is a very good way of learning what goes on because it's, it's almost like an apprenticeship. If you get involved with another venture, the risk to you is a lot less. And I always say, if you've got a good idea today, you'll have a good idea in six months' time. And if it's not, well, it's not a good idea in the first place. And when you think about it, patents last for 20 years. So it needs to be a good idea in 20 years' time as well. Otherwise, it's not worth patenting. So don't be too emotional. Don't get too precious about your, your particular baby. Have a look for what makes a good business. And final thing I would say is don't get too concerned about the money because there are always cheaper ways of doing it. As Adam Smith pointed out 200 odd years ago, money isn't true revenue. It's just the facilitator of trade. It's what you actually produce and can take to market and trade. That's the real goal. <laughs> that's the real wealth. And money just sort of lubricates the wheels of industry. And if you can demonstrate that you know how to turn those wheels, then investors will provide that grease. They will listen to you and they may even sit quietly and listen to you for 40 minutes. So uh, thank you very much for doing so.